There are many challenges when you are expecting the imminent arrival of a baby in your household. And just one of those challenges is what are you going to call the child? And you might have thought, surely that is not that difficult. Just pick a name that you like and call the baby that. But one of the things that we came up against was you have to work out, does the name that you want to choose, does that fit your surname? Hannah and I, when we were thinking about when we, when we were uh, expecting a baby, didn't know if it was a boy or a girl, we liked the name Isabella. But our surname is Bell. It's not really that fair to call a child Isabella Bell. Kind of sounds like... <laughs> Kind of sounds like a question, a bit of a strange question. Another challenge I found was that suggest, I suggested a name to Hannah. I can't remember what the name was. Let's just say it's Patricia, just for the sake of this. Suggested the name Patricia to Hannah. And, uh, and she said, oh, no, 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 no. We can't have that name. There was a Patricia in my class. She was not a nice person. <laughs> Apologies if your name is Patricia. It happens, doesn't it? We associate a name with a person, and then when we hear that name, we associate it with characteristics of that person. It kind of brings that person to mind. And the same happens when we hear the name of God. That all of us, when we hear that word, we hear that name, we have certain ideas, certain perceptions come into our mind. And what that perception is really matters. Here's A.W. Tozer, who wrote a classic called Knowledge of the Holy. Here's what he says. He says, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The gravest question before us is, this was written a few years ago, so slightly old-fashioned language, but the gravest question before us is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man it's not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he, he in his deepest heart conceives God to be like. What we think about God is the most important thing about us. And today, as we get into the second part of our Exodus series, we are going to see that God really wants to make himself known to us. So that we as a people and people that know him really do have a clarity on this is who this God is. And that we are confident then. We were singing about confidence just in that last song. We are then a confident people living our lives for him because we know him. Because even as we began the series last, last week and picked up the narrative, we started to see people being ensnared in slavery in Egypt, being tortured, even being murdered by the Egyptians. And even there, as we started to see God working through the midwives and then working to protect the baby Moses and deliver him from danger and bring him to safety, even at the beginning there, we were seeing God move, but it was in very subtle ways. He was very much in the background almost like an unknown presence in those first couple of chapters of the book. And that kind of stays the same in the rest of chapter 2 that we didn't get to look at. We find Moses as a grown man, and presumably because it feels like God's not really acting, he brings his own form of justice in the end of chapter 2, where he kills an Egyptian man who's uh, oppressing his people, and the Pharaoh then wants to kill him, so Moses has to flee. And where we pick Moses up at, the beginning of chapter 3, is that he is now wandering in the wilderness, separated from his people, working as a shepherd, and we're kind of left scratching our heads thinking, God, when are you going to act? What are you doing? But where we're going to go with today's message is we are going to see God really does want to be seen. 
He really does want to be known by his people. He wants to be known by his presence among his people, and he wants to be known by what he says. So we're going to see God draw Moses in to intimacy with him so that he can know him through the truth of who he is and be confident in living out for him. And where we'll hopefully finish our meeting is just with an opportunity for us to respond and and draw near to God just as we see Moses here. So today's message is called Knowing God. We are going to read from uh, chapter 3, verse 1. If you've got a Bible, do turn there. Always good to track along. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. The words will appear there. Um, We'll read the first 14 verses. Now, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why this bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take, off your sandals. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hittites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt." But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and, bring, and be the sign for you? Oh, sorry. That I, should, I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel. Skip ahead. Children of Israel out of Egypt. He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the, children, uh, brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And we'll just pause there. As we find Moses wandering around, almost immediately in this narrative, he comes across this bush that is on fire. Now, evidently, when you are a pretty bored shepherd wandering around the wilderness, you're probably looking for just about anything to pass the time. Sheep aren't tremendously interesting. And this grabs his attention. He thinks this is worth pausing on, this burning bush. I will, I will watch it for a little bit. There's something quite hypnotizing, isn't there, about fire. If you ever sat around a bonfire, you just find yourself watching it burning. But as he does, he realizes there is something strange going on here. This thing is, is not going out as it should. It's not, the bush is not being consumed. And then in verse 3, Moses does something that's tremendously reassuring for all of us. He starts talking to himself. 
And he says, I need to give this a bit of a closer look. I need to draw a bit closer to this thing. And so he does. He moves a bit closer to what at this point he just thinks is dry wood and fire. And then, as he does, this thing starts talking. I mean, could you imagine just drawing near to a bush and it starts talking? And it starts talking to him. The first words that we hear are, Moses, Moses. It starts speaking his name. Now, to his eternal credit, Moses does not scarper then or just assume that there's something wrong with him. But there's something there that he thinks, I, I need to look even closer. And he starts to be further drawn in, fascinated, probably questions of what on earth is this? And how does a shrub know my name? And he must be starting to move a bit closer because he then hears the words, no, 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 don't come any closer. Don't come any closer because you are on holy ground. Take your shoes off. Quickly followed in verse 6 by the voice coming saying, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. This form in the bush announces himself and What started as something just like slightly intriguing, slightly odd, slightly weird, a bit compelling, at least something to tell the wife when he gets home of how his day was. He mustn't have that much material being a shepherd. And suddenly it has a name. And he realizes he is in the presence of the holy. He is in the presence of the supernatural, the divine of God. This God who... Up to this point, at best for Moses, would have just been ones that he'd heard, the one that he'd heard stories about. He's the God of his ancestors. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the one that he's the God from the past. He's the one that, as time has gone on, has seemed increasingly like the God who has completely forgotten about his people. The God that is now a bit of an irrelevance to the people. He featured in our story before, but we don't really see him anymore. He's probably just been relegated to kind of the, the status of a fairy tale God. And here he is, right now, in front of him, making himself known in this vivid, miraculous, burning display of holiness and glory right in front of his eyes making himself known to Moses. These are the very first words that God speaks in this whole book, the very first words of many that he will speak to Moses. And he says, Moses, Moses. As God appears in the wilderness, in this this blaze of fiery presence, verse 6 we read, Moses can't even look at it. Such is the glory and the holiness of the whole situation. This spectacle of awesome power and very much otherworldliness. This is not of this earth. But in an instant we see, this is not just some kind of impersonal force or undefinable blaze. These first words that he speaks are relational. That he wants Moses' attention. He wants to draw him in. He says, Moses, Moses. This is kind of an ancient form of uh, the repetition of endearment is what it's called. Speaking someone's name twice, you're showing affection to them. You're extending friendship to them. Drawing Moses in for a personal encounter. Drawing Moses into his presence so that Moses for himself can see him, can know him, can encounter him. 
Just as he was the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And they were able to say, look, he, I, I knew something of this God. He is the God of me. He's, I, he's mine in some sense. He is wanting to reveal himself to Moses in the same way, in an intimate encounter. He is the God who calls his people into his presence to know him for themselves before he does anything else with us. I imagine in this room there is no shortage of ambition, that we want our lives to count for something. We want to do something meaningful with our lives, that many of us would have aspirations to, to give our lives to God in a way that counts, that we, we dream of, like, I want to make a difference. I want to leave some kind of legacy that, 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 that the work that I do on this work, in this world will be remembered and will change some lives around me. That is a good thing. I mean, certainly as a church, we are ambitious. We, we want to see and long to see the city of Manchester changed by our presence. We want our, uh, the fact that we are here to mean something, to change the city, to advance the kingdom of God together. It is a good thing to have this kind of ambition. And through Exodus, we will see Moses living out this kind of life. That God is going to use him to make a difference in a, in a significant way. He is just about to, and God is preparing him to go and confront evil and go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Pharaoh as his man and then lead his people out and take them into the promised land and be the one on whom a whole nation is formed. That is making a difference. And as we look at his life, we might think, yes, that is the sort of life I want to live. I want to live a life of, of total faithfulness to God, more or less. I want, to be, I want to do what he's asked me to do. I want to fulfill this assignment. I want to make a difference for him. That's a good thing. And here we see, this is where that kind of life begins. This is where it flows from. This intimate encounter in the presence of God. Don't you find it interesting in verse 5 that God says to him, you're on holy ground, so take your shoes off. You know, I would have thought God would say, you're on holy ground, keep your shoes on. You can't touch the holy. It's too, it's too holy for you. But he says, no, 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 I want you to touch this. I want you to experience it. I want you to be connected in some way to this holy event that is going on in your midst. So I want you to feel something of the holiness underneath your feet. We know he can't look and keep his eyes open looking directly at it, but almost undoubtedly he must have been able to kind of feel the warmth of the fire on his face. Maybe smell the burning of the, the wood as it was going on. But Moses here, clearly, he is encountering and experiencing the manifest presence of God. After drawing Moses out of the water, as we saw last week, and saving him, we now see God drawing him in, into encounter, into relationship. That's the pattern that God does with his people. He always saves us and rescues us, as we've been worshipping today, so that he can then draw us into relationship and encounter with him. Like Moses, that's what he wants for us. He wants us to know and experience his presence amongst us that we would be able to sense and know something of his holiness, to know I am with God. To allow ourselves to be drawn in to actually meeting God ourselves. This is so important for us, and it is available to each of us, but it is so easy for us to miss out on. 
I know that for sure. I mean, it's easy. I found it easy to plant a church and sometimes forget to cultivate intimacy with God. It is so easy for us to live very solid Christian lives and yet not really be going after this kind of relationship with God. We can go to church every Sunday. We can go to home group. We can be leading home groups, serve faithfully, give generously, read the right books, listen to the right podcasts, but miss this. He really doesn't want us to miss out on he is a God to be known and experienced. If it's true for Moses in verse 5 where he's told, do not come any closer, how much more true is it for us who have been told in Hebrews, let us draw near with a true heart and an in full assurance of our faith. Through our faith in Jesus Christ, we have been cleansed, we have been purified, so that we can come right into the holiness now, that we can enjoy his presence. What we've been made for, what we've been remade for in Christ is to enjoy this kind of relationship, to know him in a manifest way and draw into his presence. And it's as he draws Moses in to this encounter, it's then that he speaks to Moses to bring this fundamental and essential knowledge of who he is. As you go through the passage, I think perhaps the clearest thing that God is trying to do in this passage is communicate to Moses who he is so that Moses really knows for himself. We've seen it in verse 6. He doesn't just introduce himself as, I am God, but I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. He's bringing a bit of definition, and he repeats that exact same phrase in verse 15 and in verse 17. It's part of the reason we didn't go on in our passage. I thought you'll probably have got the point. And then later in verse 18, he uses another name. He says, I am the Lord, Yahweh, that, that word that he's used a lot already through Scripture. I am the God of the Hebrews. Constantly throughout this dialogue, he's telling God his name. He wants Moses to know, this is who I am. And perhaps the most significant comes in verse 14. For the first time in the Bible, God is essentially asked, who are you? And he replies with perhaps one of the most famous self-declarations from God of who he is. Where he says, I am who I am. Which is a bit of a strange saying. I don't think, what is God saying here? But this is, I want us to go into a little bit of depth here. What I want to do over this next little bit is just to give us a bit of a basis of what is it that God is actually saying here? Because it's language we would not use about ourselves unless we're being very guarded. And then I want to give two reasons that we can build upon that, reasons why this, this statement from God matters to us. And just as a little bit of a kind of overarching thing, because God is talking about how different he is to all of us and of his creation, almost by its very nature, it takes a little bit of us trying to get our heads around it. But we're okay with that, aren't we? We've come to learn today. We want to grow. We want to go deeper. And as we've been talking about, there is nothing else worth giving our mind more to than exploring and getting to grips with who God really is. And this is what he says about himself. To help us understand a little bit of what God is saying here then, think about how you would finish this kind of self-introduction that God gives. So he says, I am who I am. How would you finish the sentence, I am dot, dot, dot? You would probably start with your name. I am Duncan, my instance. What would you say next? I am maybe your age, 
You might give profession. You might give family circumstances. What else would you say? What else would you say? For me personally, I might say, I am Duncan. I am 33. I am a husband to Hannah. I'm the father of two young boys. I am unbelievably bad at the card game Dobble. <laughs> and if you don't know what the card game Dobble is, try and keep that the case. You don't want to learn about it. It's a rubbish game. Now, all of those things are things that I can use to give myself a sense of identity. They tell me something of who I am. The way that I understand who I am is through that kind of list, right? Now, if you notice, all of those things that I've said, my name, my age, family stuff, all of that, all of those are dependent upon things that are outside of me, okay? They are things that... If, I'm, if I was to say I'm a church leader, not much of a church leader if I don't have a church to lead. So that's the thing that's outside of me. To be a husband, I need to have a wife. To be a father, I need to have children. To have a name, I need to have had somebody to give me that name and then to use that name on an ongoing way. For a name to be significant, you need to have other people use it. Even to have an age, this is a slightly more complicated one, but to have an age, you are dependent upon the dimension of time existing, right? We were, yeah? Yeah? <laughs> Excellent. We won't go too much into the dimension of time. No multiverses here this morning. But what the point is, for me and for all of us here, for everything of who we are, any way that we try and define ourselves and think about ourselves is actually dependent on something that is not us. Right? So whether that's another person or whether it's a dumb card game, there are things that it's the things that aren't me that actually tell me who I am. Takes a bit of getting your head around. But here's the point. Not so with God. He is not defined by things that are outside of himself. He is not saying, I am God here. I am God. I am from space. I, can, I am able to bench press 150 pounds. <laughs> Imagine if that was all he could do. I'm a fan of Nike training. He's not saying those things because he is not defined by things external to himself. He says, I am who I am. He is the only being that finds the sense of who he is entirely within himself. He is self-defining. The King James Version has it as, I am what I am. Or literally in the Hebrew it is, I be who I be which is easily the coolest one. Now, you're thinking, if I've lost you, you're, also, you're probably thinking, why on earth does this matter? Why are you telling me this? Well, two things. Firstly, it means that God is supreme because what he's saying here is, I existed before anything else existed. Again, the easiest way to understand this, there's a, way, a number of ways you can approach it, but let's go with the easiest, right? Imagine you are the only thing that exists. I'm not saying imagine you are the only person in the room. You are the only person who exists. The only thing that exists. Nothing else. If you are an introvert, you are in your happy place right now. <laughs> thinking, finally, some peace and quiet. You are the only person, only thing that exists. Now imagine if you are asked to describe, well, tell me what you see. Tell me everything that's going on around you. What are you able to say? 
the only way that you can talk about yourself or talk about your world is if you is using language of yourself because you are the only thing. You have to talk about yourself and only talking about yourself. You are the only subject. Now, some of you, the rest of you are in your happy place, perhaps. And then imagine if someone says, right, try and describe yourself. How do you go about that if you are the only thing that exists? Every single time, you're always going to have to just be pointing back to and referring yourself to yourself. You know, what other options have you got? Mr. I am who I am. That's the language. That's what God is saying here. He is using the language of the one who has existed before anything else. And of course, if he is the first, you then logically have to follow the flow. Where does everything else come from? Because everything else has got to come from somewhere, right? Then it disappear. Then of course, it flows from this I am who I am must be the one who created everything that brought everything else into existence. This statement, I am who I am, is a statement of utter supremacy, utter primacy, and utter power. If your head is hurting and you're like, Duncan, you totally lost me, here is the conclusion. God is saying, I made everything in this statement. I, everything depends on me. Everything comes from me. Everything only exists truly in relation to who I am. This is not just God saying, oh, I'm powerful. He is saying, all power flows from me. I am the source of everything. Egypt, Pharaoh, slave masters, they might seem big, they might seem terrifying to you. They belong to me. They only exist because I allow them to. They only exist through me. They depend upon me. He wants Moses here to grasp the truly magnificent strength of what he goes on to call in verse 19, his mighty hand. It's his supremacy that he is demonstrating through his promises in this. These promises that he's making are promises of a God who are, is really in control. Throughout this passage, you will have noticed as I was reading, God is not vague about what he plans to do and what he's got up his sleeve. He's not like, oh, I'm pretty sure I can get you out of Egypt, uh, and so we'll do that. And once we've done that, we'll, kind of, we'll see where we go from there. God is absolutely clear, this is what is going to go down. He's like, I, I'm going to bring you to a land, and that land is going to be broad, and it's going to be flowing with milk and honey, and I'm going to defeat your enemies. Oh, which enemies, you ask? Well, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. I know every single one of them that I'm going to overthrow. Later on in, in this chapter that we didn't read, he says, I'm going to strike the enemies with what turns out to be plagues and wonders, he says. And then as a parting flourish, he says, when I set you free, the Egyptians are going to give you their gold and their silver and their fine clothing. And then these are promises that he repeats through the passage. Now, it's not simply to fill up space in your Bible, but when... Uh, promises are repeated like that, that is a kind of guarantee, this is going to happen. You can bet this is going to go down. If God just did all of these things for the people, that would be quite something. But to say, this is exactly what is going to happen to the very last detail, and then as we shall see through, as we go through the book, for him to fulfill every single one of his promises here, that is quite a move. Do you know this is how supreme your God is? That he says, I'm going to overthrow Pharaoh, and this is exactly how I'm going to do it, and then he does it. 
later on in the Bible. He says, I'm going to send my people into exile, and, but I'm still going to keep them. They're still going to be mine, and then I'm going to draw them back in this way at this time. That's how I'm going to do it, and then he does it. A God who says that he's going to come and be among his people one day. And then when he does, he says, I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be murdered. I'm going to be buried in a tomb. But three days later, I will rise again. He says it, and then exactly as he says it, he does it. That is supremacy. He is in complete control over our lives. He numbers our days. He makes straight our paths. What a comfort this is. In a day where, days where the very thing that our nation has been founded on for 70 years has been shaken. In days when the leadership of our country seems so uncertain, we can see God is supreme. He's supreme, and secondly, we see God's allegiance in this statement. He wants Moses to know just how, how much his God is on his side. Again, just returning to that basis that we were in of God finding identity within himself, if he was only, if he's the only one whose identity is not dependent on anything outside of himself, what that means is he doesn't need anything or anyone other than himself to be who he is, right? In and of himself, no other external factors required. He is completely whole, completely full, completely satisfied. He just needs himself. That's all he needs. Again, some of us might think that is true about us, but with God, it is actually true. He is the only one who only needs himself. What does that mean? It means God doesn't need anything. He doesn't need a Moses. He doesn't need a people. He doesn't even need a creation. And so if God doesn't need a creation, why create? Why? Why act here to overthrow evil? Why say, I'm going to go to that people and I'm going to... I'm going to set them free and I'm going to liberate them from the people who's in, who are enslaving them. Why promise to them, I'm going to give you an abundant and blessed land forever and ever. Why come down in the middle of nowhere to appear to a random shepherd so that he can, that shepherd is able to come close and into his presence and he might know him for himself and speak to him? Why do it? If he doesn't need to, the only option left is because he chooses to because he chooses to be among his people, chooses to act on their behalf. He chooses to see his people in affliction. He chooses to be moved by compassion of what he sees when they're being heavy burdened by, by their oppressors. He chooses, in verse 18, to come down and give himself to his people, to act on their behalf, to deliver them out, to give them the promised land. Only God can truly do this. There is an episode of the 90s sitcom Friends where I get all of my philosophy and theology that says there is no, where, where Joey, one of the characters, says to Phoebe, there is no selfless good deed. Give me a nod if you've seen this episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is no selfless good deed. And Phoebe then, of course, spends the whole episode trying to find a selfless good deed that she can do, where she gets no benefit from it herself. She's just being kind and generous to someone else. And of course, there are hilarious consequences as she gets stung by a bee and tries to give money to charity and all of that sort of stuff. But despite all of her attempts, she cannot do it. She cannot 
do a selfless good deed. Everything she does, she realizes she gets at least some benefit from it. She can't act purely selflessly. Because like all of us, Phoebe is not in and of herself completely whole and completely satisfied. She is not a self-defined person. All of us are exactly the same. When, whatever we do, whatever our best efforts are, whenever we try and give, 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 and be as generous as we possibly can, we cannot help in that same action also getting and trying to get and finding some benefit for ourselves because we're not full, we're not whole. Not so with God. See, when he acts, he cannot gain. He cannot benefit. Because he already has in and of himself everything. He requires nothing. And this is what is so beautiful about this statement, I am who I am, is that this is not just supreme power on display, but whenever they see God acting, whenever they know he is on the move, they know that all he is looking to do on their behalf is give. God is not trying to get a thing from them when he acts. Just think of the confidence that God here is looking to inspire among Moses and in his people. That in all of these promises he's making to them, because he is not trying to get anything from them, God is able to freely just give himself on behalf of his people, to be for them completely and utterly, to give all of the power of heaven, all of the power of his mighty hand to them, not for himself at all, giving himself to them. There is a deep confidence and security that is available to us when we are able to internalize this is who God really is, that he is never looking to try and get from us, never looking to try and take. He is always looking to give and give and give for no other reason other than he just really, 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 really wants to and has decided to, that this would bring him joy and delight to give into his people, to pour into them. That's what he's decided that he'll do. He can only look to us and do good with his mighty hand and his outstretched arm. This means that when we go into work tomorrow and we come up against our boss, who might not be, you know, a murderous pharaoh, who might not be far off, we can know God is with me and he is for me. When you are trying to navigate whole life, and you're just like, this might not quite be Egypt, but it certainly feels oppressive. It certainly feels hostile to my faith. You can know there is a God that is with me, and he is totally for me. He's giving himself on my behalf. When we find ourselves desperate and distressed, groaning out and crying to people, we can know, uh, like these people, we can know it might not always be on our time, but we know God is the one who acts. As Paul says in Romans, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. We know that is who God is. He is for us. And this is the confidence that God is looking to send Moses out in, to know God is really on my side. This is where what he's, he's, he's putting all of this in Moses because he's got a job for him to do. As he meets Moses for the first time, he's drawing him into his presence and stealing him in. This is the confidence you can have in who your God is. And then he sends him out. 
Verse 10, come, I will send you. Verse 16, he says, go. Verse 18, you and the elders shall go to the king of Egypt. He wants to send Moses out knowing this God is with me and I can be confident in how he might move. We won't get to look in chapter 4 in in much detail as we go through the series, but God is looking even in that chapter to bring additional assurances of these same type. He uses signs to convince Moses, I really am with you. He turns a, st- a staff into a snake. He turns his hand leprous and then unleprous again for Moses' sake, for his brother's Aaron's sake, for the people's sake, so that they know this God who is speaking, this I am who I am, he really is at work. He really is active among them. We too, are, we're a people called to go. We're a people that we... We are called to come together like this, to be drawn in by God like we have been this morning, to strengthen one another, to be in his presence together, to go deeper in him together so that we then go, just like Moses, to our workplaces, to our sports clubs, to our halls of residence, to our, the parks of Manchester, to the nightclubs, to the football stadiums, even to Old Trafford to the gyms, to the cafes, to Oxford Road when we go flyering this coming week together as a church, to go, but to go fully confident in this is who God is. And this same God who speaks is the God that is with me. And if you're new amongst us and you're new to Manchester maybe, and you're looking for, I need a place where I can, I can grow. I need a place where I belong. But I, I, want, I want my life to count. I want to make a difference. We would love to welcome you into our family as, as a place where we, we come together. We're family. We love one another. We, we build one another up. But we do it for a purpose, so that we can go together. And we can be truly confident, even more confident than Moses, because we too know this, I am. In John chapter 8, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Again, a grammatically weird statement that should get us thinking, huh, I've heard that before. A direct reference to this passage, this same God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, of Moses here, truly now come to be with his people to deliver them. Come to not uh, be served, but to serve. Come not to get, but to give and give and give, where we see on the cross there is nothing that Jesus will not give. He truly is for us. But in the risen, resurrected, victorious Christ, we see the I am in all of his glory. We see that he truly does have a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, that this Yahweh, this I am who I am, cannot be defeated. This is the God that we now know, that through the Holy Spirit, this same God, we now know with us, not just as God with us alongside us, as Moses would have known, but God with us, living inside of us. That we live out the life of the mighty hand and the outstretched arm. All of the power of the resurrected, risen, eternal Christ in us day by day.